all they do is again build like another armor, another barrier to protect this system further instead of saying this tree is obviously rotten and we need to pull the whole thing out. Welcome to the Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. We're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Brenda Marie Davies. Brenda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being a guest and for saying yes to this. This is really exciting. Yes, I'm excited as well. Before we dive into our conversation today, Brenda, can you give our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, I am a YouTuber, podcaster, um, and author. My memoir, On Her Knees, is releasing on April 6th. It's available for pre-sale now. And um, uh, my main wheelhouses are uh, probably purity culture and just progressive Christianity as a whole, which is all about, you know, not only following Jesus, but activism and, um, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So I identify my channel by saying I am a sex positive, LGBTQ affirming, science believing, intellectual Christian. And that sort of checks all the boxes if people are interested in wondering. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's where I stand on those hot topics. Yes. I'm sure that cuts right to the chase for a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Which it's a great setup for our conversation today, Brenda. We are sort of talking about um, progressivism and uh, a little bit beyond what some would call traditional Christianity. And, you know, there has sort of been this, Maybe it's subtle, maybe it's not, but there is a battle between those who would want to conserve the way uh, America and Christianity has traditionally been thought of and viewed and expressed, but there is a giant wave of newness and social activism playing out within our religious identity today. Uh, so today we're going to try and clear the air, uh, if we can. Yeah. So, so for the sake of our conversation, Brenda, how would we define those two terms, you know, traditional Christianity and progressive Christianity? What are some of the defining traits for both of those, in your opinion? I don't want to oversimplify, which, you know, if you're saying you want the elevator pitch of both, you have to. But um, I would say that in evangelicalism, I was told to reside in all black and whites. The Bible is very clear. God's will is obvious. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, X, Y, and Z. And progressivism, on the other hand, is still the following of Jesus, the um, belief in that, but also an expanded view of welcoming in gray areas, of acknowledging when God says he is love, but gay people commit suicide <clears throat> because they're told they can't be who they are. Like progressive Christianity allows you to look at both of those things, hold space for them and say, wait, something isn't adding up here. And um, it's about questions. That's another thing I was never permitted to 
do in evangelicalism. I wasn't allowed to ask questions. And it's not explicitly stated. It's just in the way you are treated when you do have questions that are valid. Um, like, why can't my gay friends serve on the worship team? Why can't women be preachers, et cetera, et cetera? Um, again, progressive Christianity holds space for that. But I just did a video on this uh, last Monday on Alyssa Childers, who is considered a expert on progressive Christianity. And her work is really out to demonize and debunk the entire movement. But I stated in my video, this is not a church with a doctrinal set of beliefs. This is simply a movement. So anyone that ends up deconstructing their faith, whether it be our relations to race or our relations to spirituality in general or atonement. Again, we're just holding space for those questions and progressive Christians that take on that label often land on different places in that spectrum, which is why it's really hard to nail down and say, look, this is the progressive belief system because it, yeah, it just, it, it's a very expanded view of faith. Now, along that line, I, I also grew up in a very traditional conservative framework, and it was easy to have sort of benchmarks and, and boundaries of what was Christianity, what was not Christianity, for the sake of your own quote-unquote faith. You know, it gave you guidelines as to what was safe and what wasn't. Do you think that there's a danger with sort of having an ambiguity to that progressive approach, or, or does that actually play into one of its strengths? I truly believe that it plays into its strengths because when we reside in this black and white narrative where we're not permitted to ask questions and we're not permitted to even doubt really difficult things that, you know, wrapping your head around, like if you're told you have to believe in a six day earth, but you're a biology student, that's your passion. And that narrative is really contradicting with science that you're given. Um, you can dig your heels in and be like, no, it's black and white. The Bible is clear. I was told I'm not allowed to believe this, but that is really creating your faith, quote unquote, on an ethic of, or on a foundation of fear. And the Bible tells us over 90 times not to fear or a variation of that. Um, God even says that Satan is the author of fear. So I find it very ironic and also devastating that a lot of times different sections of church, different denominations have really foundationally built themselves on fear. Like don't have sex because you might get STDs. Don't, you know, um, affirm gay people because you and them might go to hell. Those are fear-based tenants. And again, if Satan is the author of that, then it makes no sense. We're building upon that altar of fear. So I truly believe like for me especially sexuality and orientation and that sort of subject matter was really where i had a lot of my reckoning with the black and whites and really realizing that there is gray area and that more than two even more than seven things can be true at the same time when you're diving into truly complicated issues in this world and um 
it wasn't until I let go completely of the fear of the black and whites and really wrestled with my deconstruction that I began finding so much freedom to build my sexual ethic on love and consent and a true sense of morality that's based in the foundation of who I am and what I truly believe. And from that springs authenticity. If you're white knuckling your way through life in fear and not wrestling with these ideas, then all you're doing is kind of like being a soldier in this army of black and white versus, again, tearing it all open, looking inside, aligned with God. You can do it aligned with spirit and say, you know what, this is scary, but I have some really big questions I'm wrestling with. And In my experience and many experiences I know in progressive Christianity, where it lands you is in a deep sense of knowing and a deep sense of peace that you are aligned with God now and that what you believe is actually what you believe. And, you know, when I actually came to a moral and personal conclusion for myself, for example, that um, porn Um, just because of the ethics of it and it's not ethically sourced and all the complicated nuance to it. I don't watch it not because my pastor says not to. I don't watch it because that's an ethic that I, you know, grasped and, and retained for myself. And again, progressivism leaves space for all of that. And it just, it really... It breeds authenticity, it breeds freedom, and it breeds the capability to live in true love. The catalyst moving towards progressivism or progressive approaches towards Christianity is probably a spectrum. And I don't, again, want to minimize or generalize people's experience. But in your experience, is there usually similar beats with what the catalyst or the the momentum is moving out of those traditional frameworks? I think it's really beautiful that everyone seems to have their own specific reckoning. And then it's like, as soon as you pull out that one Django block, the whole thing can come crumbling down. And trust me, that's a good thing because then you can build your house on bricks instead of on this like really shaky foundation. Um, For me, it was sexuality. Um, One of the first major reckonings I had was being told for the first time when I was 12 years old at my evangelical church that all my gay friends were going to hell unless they repented. And um, it's so wild to me because my whole entire upbringing, and I'm sure any parent would agree with this, you teach your child embodiment, even if you don't know the word, you teach them that. You say, you know, if someone comes by and they make you feel strange, or if you walk by a dark alley and all of your goose pimples stand up on your arms and you feel sick, sick to your stomach, abide by that. Listen, that is your body telling you you're running, you're in a bad situation. So these are just principles that we all agree upon, like as a society, as parents, and we, we teach these things to our children. And then we bring them into these spaces of faith, which are arguably the most vulnerable spaces. They're vulnerable for your sexuality, your spirituality, your mental health. And we say, oh, remember that thing I told you about embodiment to listen to your body and to intuit if you're in danger, reject all of that. 
if if something makes you sick to your stomach, for me, it was when the pastor said my gay friends were going to hell. It hit me so wrong. Every ounce of my being was like, this is wrong. But I had to, in that evangelical space, white knuckle it and convince myself, wait, I must be wrong. And they tell you this. They they, I'm sorry, spiritually manipulate. And it, it can also lead into spiritual abuse to tell people your heart is deceitful. Your flesh is evil. Because <clears throat> um, what those things do is they disembody you. They say, yes, you are feeling intuitive ideas in yourself. Your body is telling you, your spirit, your mind that you are dwelling within is telling you this message is wrong or off base but you're ignoring that because it's your pastor. You have to trust him because it's the Bible. It's black and white. So I think a lot of people had that moment where there's something at the pit of your stomach. I just interviewed a fellow author friend of mine, L. Dowd, who uh, you know, really believed racism wasn't a problem in the United States anymore until she adopted two black daughters. And even then she thought it was pretty much eradicated, a thing of the past. And it wasn't until um, she really became privy to BLM and the movement going on that she realized she had been given misinformation and she realized that in her gut, it had always been wrong to her. So a lot of these, you know, were conflated or, or demonized with like um, progressive politics and told that, oh, we just want to please the world and we just want to be cool and hip and we don't want to lose our relevance. Um, so therefore we are hitching our spirituality to BLM or to affirming gay people or whatever the case may be, or to affirming evolution as a true bio biological thing. Um, but that's not it at all. We, we really are just saying there was always something wrong with this inside of us. And, and this is the space in which we're allowed to say, okay, now we're saying it out loud. This has always been wrong. And the really beautiful thing to me is that you can really glean from the Bible what you're looking for. And that can be problematic. It can be edifying. If you want to make a case for slavery, if you want to make a case for conversion therapy, you can open up the Bible and find that. If you want to make a case for marching with BLM or for universal health care, you can also find that. So this is why, to me, embodiment is so important. And those intuitive spiritual gifts we were given since the day we were born, I believe we're supposed to be following them. And if something is striking you that wrong, just like you were told as a child, it's wrong. You are in danger. You got to run. So now we look around at Christian culture today, specifically, we see a horrendous multitude of problems, such as the, the recent sexual scandals with people like Ravi Zacharias and uh, Carl Lentz. Uh, we see prosperity gospel. We see greed going on, sexual allegations, as, as we mentioned. Why do you think that there's almost this blindness to reality, in a sense, meaning you know, as progressive Christians walk away from the institution, as we point out issues that we're seeing, those basically within sort of sort of say, you know, why are you leaving? Why are you walking away? You know, why is there that willful ignorance, so to speak? This is something that I see a lot of evangelicals resisting. And um, it's the concept and truth, quite frankly, that 
we have systems that have a long, long lineage and history of why they're in place. We do have systems of white supremacy. When you look beneath the surface, I mean, our country was built on white supremacy. So to deny that we would have the remnants, that we would still have some of those systems in place, you know, is is just absurd to me when you really look into it. And that's not to shame anyone that doesn't see something like that. Because trust me, that was a journey I went on on my own. I was I was the girl that did not see it at all. I was like, if I don't hear people shouting the N-word in the street, then racism is eradicated. What are you guys talking about? And that's that's really difficult because when we're seeing it on a surface level like that, we're looking at individuals and saying, well, this is just that individual. It's just that bad cop. It's just that bad pastor. It's just because Carl Lentz like, was hanging out with Biebs too much and like got a little full of himself. But the thing is, it's much deeper than that. And it's not an individual problem. The individuals are like the fruit on the tree that's rotted that we have to pull out. And I'm not calling the people rotted, but I'm saying, yes, some of their moral behavior has absolutely rotted. And it's because it was all facilitated, propped up and planted in these systems that are oppressive and that do lead to toxicity and abuse. So I bring up white supremacy as like a really broad problem that I think everyone needs to dig their heels in and really research and understand further. But with our church, again, I already brought up the idea of your heart is deceitful, your flesh is evil. Women submit to your husbands. This means you're supposed to have sex with your husband whenever he wants. All of these Bible verses that were perverted to be about sexuality or about female submission, that were actually much more grandiose and beautiful and affirming of equality than we are presented to them now. So when we have a system where we are allowed to just say, or we're allowing our pastors to just say, look, you were wearing the spaghetti straps. Like, what did you think was going to happen? And maybe it doesn't seem as brutal as that, but trust me, it is as brutal as that. Like, my, um, I knew a girl, for example, in a youth group that I went to, and she was actually raped by one of the guys on the worship team. And she never admitted it to anyone. She never came out and said it publicly because he also got having an or got caught having an affair with the pastor's wife. So she kind of felt like he was already outed and he was already humiliated and kicked out of the church. But even watching that whole scenario go, go down, when I looked back, his wife was kicked out of the church before he was because she was accused of having bitterness and wanting to drag him down. They didn't know about the rape, of course, but it was about this affair that he had. She was really ostracized and alienated first because, again, in evangelicalism, we were given these certain scripts of like, if you're not pleasing your husband, of course he might go somewhere else. Don't you know men are just more more visual? They they need sex more. You have to give it to them. Otherwise, you don't know what will happen. And with my friend, she was meanwhile being primed in this abusive system in our youth group. She was told as her body developed and she developed more quickly than all of us, you need to shroud yourself in a big t-shirt. We can still see the curve of your breasts, like make the t-shirt bigger, make it bigger and make it bigger. You're causing all the men to stumble. So look at these systems, look at this thing that we created. We created a culture where 
women are given the responsibility of not tempting men with our just the existence of our beings and ourselves, no matter how young we are. This girl's developing at 12 years old. She's raped at 14. Like, and it was her fault because she was told she had not dressed modestly enough. She swayed her hips too much was another complaint our female pastor had. How could she not? This child, this 14-year-old internalized this as her fault. We were always primed to believe our assaults were, were on us and our husband's cheating on us was on us. And what this does to men and these men in power is again, reiterates to them, oh, I'm an animalistic creature. I can't help myself. I'm motivated. I'm visual. Like these girls need to protect me from my sin. All again, ironic, completely not biblical. Jesus himself said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, not make everybody else not do things that make your eye sin. So that is just an example. And that's that's just one example of, I hate to say it, but millions. And since I started my channel, I have thousands, uh, probably tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands now in this three years of stories of abuse, 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 people coming out, telling me these stories for the first time. And again, it's because we've created systems that harbor abusers and abuse seekers. Seekers are told to shut up and sit down. Seekers are told, if you don't believe us, you're the cherry picker. And the meanwhile, the abusers are propped up as knowing the truth of the black and whites, always being in the right. And even in a scandal, like with Ravi, you see the church scurry to protect their image, to say, oh, well, this was an isolated incident. No, if only we had known. All they do is, again, build like another armor, another barrier to protect this system further instead of saying, holy moly, this tree is obviously rotten and we need to pull the whole thing out. points to to the bigger you know sad reality of you know let's let's take that that example for this case what would actual reckoning with the issue look like in your opinion you know not just because i i have my own set of opinions on the 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 long response that the Ravi Zacharias Ministries responded with. Um, but to me, and I've commented on our Instagram page, to me, it's a little too late. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything. And what you're hoping to do is just, you know, say sorry and now get your toys back. I don't think that's the way it works. What does it actually look like to to reckon with this stuff? I mean, one of the first things the church is doing so terribly wrong is they're not getting apologies remotely right. Um, I just did an episode where I was reached out to by victims um, of a local church here in LA called Mosaic, alleged victims, excuse me, not trying to get myself in trouble. Um, and I made a video just saying like, allegedly these things are happening. Allegedly, these are the stories I'm sharing them. These women are sharing them. What is your response? And their response was, deplorable truly it was these people are trying to attack us christians really i mean in the worst case scenarios dig their heels into persecution complex you're just trying to tear us down you're just trying to rip apart the church so we can't stand anymore and 
you know, my friends have a Instagram called do better church. And one of the points I made was their handle isn't at destroy the church. It's at do better church. That is an invitation. So I have yet, and maybe you can tell me if you've seen differently. I have yet to see a proper apology, which would be (laughs) naming the abusers, admitting your complicity, admitting what systems were in place to make that complicity and that abuse possible, name all of the people surrounding that person that had protected and harbored that abuser and rip it all out. And, you know, it's, it's really complicated because I hate to keep going back to, um, racial justice, but I just had this, this beautiful interview with this author, L. Dowd. And, you know, we were talking about the concept of defund the police and how that's so triggering because people think that means, oh, you're trying to destroy us. And like, we don't, we don't need the system anymore or whatever. And there's a lot of confusion with it, but there's, there's two perspectives to it. Like I, as a white woman who was protected by that, this system of policing, you know, wanted to think, oh, well, there's bad apples. So, you know, let's just pluck out the bad apples and let's retrain them in a way that serves the community better. And let's put other resources in there, like mental health resources to make sure those new policies are in place. But then I watch a video like the murder of Elijah McClain, where I've been told there's good police. Oh, there's bad apples, but there's good police. In that video, there's three police and two paramedics actively murdering Elijah McClain, while I believe 12 to 15 other officers and paramedics stand around watching. So my question was, where are these good police? Would you mind pointing me to the good police? Would you show me where they are? And the thing is, that is not an accusation that all of those people are horrible people. I definitely want them to see justice and they deserve every bit of of true justice in this world. But it's the system. It's the system that was built that, that all led to this. And I really don't know how to remedy this by like, you know, again, if you have a tree with root rot, which is what these systems have, these churches with abusers like Ravi have root rot at the core of their roots. So to say, oh, we're just going to keep plucking off these rotten apples isn't going to do anything. The, tr- the, the tree will continue and continue to continue to produce rotten apples. So, you know, I'm not the one to say what, but I am one to say I've defected and I don't have plans to go back into one of those atmospheres. And at the same time, I have dreams of um, or aspirations, true real life aspirations of being invited to evangelical churches to give them sex talks and to educate them on how to do comprehensive sex ed for their whole community to get them in a better place of health for their congregation. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think until we have genuine real apologies and people really are willing to look at the root rot and pull it all out and get rid of every bit of rot that's there to then build something brand new, 
um, I don't know how the church won't die. And frankly, the church is dying. My friend Phil Drysdale does a lot of excellent research on deconstruction, and there is a mass exodus. And it's not only in America. I've talked to people internationally, and the church, the evangelical church specifically, is dying everywhere. And it's because it's rotted in a lot of different systems, whether it be the system of um, colonization, the system of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, or the system of like women being lesser citizens in that space. And don't tell me they're not. If a woman can't teach, preach, or pray, um, she is a lesser citizen in that space. Same with LGBTQ people. If they're not allowed to sing, share their, their, their hearts, and be treated like you know, they're not living in sin 24-7, then they are second-class citizens as well. So I just don't know. There's, in short, I'm trying to say I, I believe in redemption. I believe in reconciliation. And I'm not giving hope on any, I'm give, not giving up hope on any person, any individuals. If I'm invited to these spaces, I would be very happy to attend and to see what I could do to help lead them into greater health. And at the same time, I have yet to see a church accurately and appropriately reckoning with their root rot. Yeah, I think I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not even going to try to. Like, to I hope this wasn't that. supposed to be a, an amusing conversation. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not that it's not amusing. It's just that you, when you point something out, I think I think our listeners, if they're actively doing this work, which I know they are their immediate thought is drawn to their own space and to say, where's the rotten tree where I attend? Where's the, where's the problematic fruit that I have dismissed, but I know is there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so being able to provide space to just sit and respond to that, I think is important uh, and necessary because otherwise then we're just going to move on to the next thing because that's how the system is designed. Yeah. And I think if I could like end on anything specifically about the, the issue of progressivism, I feel at the beginning of the conversation, I like I haven't talked to anyone yet today, so I was like a little shaky at the top. But like really, to me, the the whole concept of progressive Christianity is as expansive as I described it, and it's just honestly half amusing and half super disheartening to watch evangelicals desperately try to define us. And it's funny because I'm just like, well, that so speaks to the culture of evangelicalism. If you're still residing in those black and whites and these boxed in definition, a woman behaves and acts and does this, a man behaves and acts, like all they do in evangelicalism is hold systems and people and places and boxes, define things in a way that they believe God defined it. So it doesn't surprise me that when they see us progressives, they need to define us and they need to figure out what our doctrinal beliefs are and our system and where is our church and how can they burn it down? And, oh, we are the wolves. We are the enemy. Like I keep seeing evangelicals like Elisa Childers and Ali B. Stuckey and Mark Comer, I forget his name, you know, basically say we are the wolves prowling around trying to destroy the church. And I'm like, um, we're just calling out the terrible systems of abuse. That is not persecution. You are not being persecuted. You are being called to conviction. You are being taken to task and we are showing you what's wrong. And we 
I believe would wish, we wish we were welcome into your spaces and you wouldn't call us these demons and these wolves. But as long as you do, of course, we're going to be at odds with each other. But it's it's not definable. Like, again, I am a Christian. I believe the same tenets that I've always believed. I personally believe in Jesus's death and atonement and resurrection. And like I said at the top, like, not every progressive Christian does. Well, those are great thoughts, Brenda. Thank you. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Can you tell people about your content and where they can find you online? Yes. So I'm God is Grey, G-R-E-Y. That is on Instagram and it's youtube.com slash God is Grey. And then, like I said, my book, On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel, is about my journey from purity culture to hookup culture. And then back to full embodiment and aligning my spirituality and my sexuality. So uh, Joshua Harris of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye actually wrote my foreword, which is such a beautiful thing to me because I really wanted my book to be the antithesis to his and to basically blow all of those concepts up. So just having his stamp of approval and his blessing and his endorsement has been just making my heart sore. So yes, if especially if you were damaged by I Kiss Dating Goodbye or any purity culture, please pick up my book. I'm sure it's a cautionary tale. It's very much like, listen to what I did, do almost none of this and just skip to the end where you are fully embodied and you are aligned beautifully, uh, mind, body, spirit, and soul. That's awesome. We'll make sure we throw it all in the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Dismantle Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change.